You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Welcome to part two of my discussion with Marsha Montenegro on the growing trend of Christians embracing a view called panentheism. We're going to talk about where we're finding this in different Christian books and blogs and a little bit more about panentheist Richard Rohr. I've got a great discussion to bring you today. It's it's the second half of the talk I had with Marcia Montenegro on all things panentheism. We also talked about perennialism. We talked about Jen Hatmaker and Richard Rohr. In fact, Marcia and I both listened to Jen Hatmaker's podcast in which she had Richard Rohr on as a guest who, of course, if you've been listening to this uh two-part panentheism series, you know, is, is an open pan, uh, panentheist. And so uh, Jen greatly admires him. And so we wanted to listen to it because we know that a lot of people are probably going to listen to it. And so we're going to bring that analysis to you as well. Although apparently Marsha and I both like to talk a lot because it went really long. And so I had to separate this into actually a third part. So we'll bring the analysis of the Jen Hatmaker podcast to you next week. And this week we'll finish up with the panentheism uh, topic and where we're finding that and, and all of that good stuff. I wanted to update you on some things going on with the ministry. Uh, first of all, I'm just hard at work on my book. Uh, it's due in September. I don't know exactly when it's going to come out. We don't have a title yet. It's about progressive Christianity told through the eyes of my story of walking through doubt. So I'm working on that. Uh, if you have a moment and you think of it, please pray for me with that endeavor. Uh, I'm trying to not travel too much right now because I've got to work on the book and I've got two small kids at home, but I am doing a few events over the summer and in the fall that I'm kind of excited about. Uh, of course, you'll hear about this more later about Impact 360, but I'm speaking at both the Propel Experience and the Immersion Experience, and that's in June and July. In August, I am going to be joining the instructor team for the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. For anyone who's followed my story at all, you know that the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy is really what launched my ministry. It is a three-day, really intensive, one-on-one type training on how to present apologetics, how to integrate apologetics into your ministries at church. It's very practical. You don't go there to learn apologetics. 
You go there if you study apologetics, but you want some practical training on how to implement it into your ministry. And so in 2016, I went for the first time and I had to give presentations in front of Frank Turek and Jay Werner Wallace, which was incredibly nerve wracking. But it was through that experience that I was encouraged to start a blog and through the blog I am now writing a book, so you just never know what can happen. That that experience, truly, it is not an exaggeration to say that that experience changed my life. I will tell you it's not cheap, but it is really worth it if you are serious about uh, becoming any type of apologist. We already are apologists as Christians, right? We all give reasons for what we believe But if you want to get better at it in your sphere of influence, I just really recommend the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. And of course, I'll be there this year as an instructor this time. It's taking place in New York. So I'm really excited about that because I lived in New York for about a year and a half or two years in my early 20s. And so you can go to crossexamined.org, click on the events tab, and there's an application process that you can go through. I'd love to see you there. And I just would love to meet any of you who are listening who might find that kind of an experience valuable. So definitely check that out. The other thing I'm excited to announce is that I'll be speaking at the Southern Evangelical Seminary National Conference in October, which is very significant for me because when I was at my lowest point of doubt and I had just discovered apologetics, SES's app is what I started listening to. That was the first thing after I, I, it was Robbie Zacharias was the first person I found and it was through his radio show that I found Southern Evangelical Seminary, SES. And I started listening to their app and all of the talks on there were answering some of the deepest questions that I was having. So when I found out they had a conference all those years ago, I wanted to go so bad. And so I finally was able to go in 2016. And it was just a huge moment for me to be around all of these people that I had been listening to their lectures and who had helped me so much, who were really, to use a metaphor I use a lot, they were lifeboats for me. And so I got to attend the conference in 2016. So it's kind of a, an amazing full circle moment for me to be able to be speaking at that conference in October. It's October 11th and 12th in North Carolina. And you can go to Southern Evangelical Seminary. Oh, I better look this up, make sure I'm getting the uh, the website, right? It's ses.edu. And you can find more information. I would love to see you there. I'm speaking at one of the plenary sessions, and I'm also doing a breakout session on progressive Christianity. So check that out. Love to see you there. Well, last week, we talked about the growing number of Christians who are accepting a view of the nature of God called panentheism. And this is not to be confused with the worldview of pantheism. And so if you want to kind of understand what panentheism is and what pantheism is, definitely listen to part one. This is part two today uh, with Marsha Montenegro. And and Marsha, before we get into today's discussion, it, it occurred to me that Christians who are listening to this about panentheism, they might wonder if there's like a good resource you could recommend, a book. What could you recommend uh, to help Christians understand this if they want to take some time on their own to really dig into this? Yes, uh, Elisa, I would love to recommend this book called Panentheism, The Other God, 
of the Philosophers, and it's by John W. Cooper. Um, he writes as a Christian scholar, and it is not a uh, light book. I mean, you, you're not just going to whiz through this book. I've been reading it for, I think, over, <laughs> I think for three years. <laughs> That's partly I've got a couple also, of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm partly, you know, having to read, stop and read other books. Um, but I have gotten through probably, um, I think, maybe at least three-fourths of it, maybe more. He goes through panentheism historically. He goes way back to to really ancient writers like the Greeks. Uh, before the word was coined, the word was panentheism was not coined till much, much later. But you can still see the ideas of panentheism earlier before the concept is given a name. And he goes through that very carefully. He gives lots of quotes. He explains why, what it is. Um, why this person uh, could be classified that way, or maybe why it's questionable whether or not. And he takes it through history and goes up, uh, you know, gets up to more contemporary times, uh, gets to the uh, what are called the process theologians, like Alfred North Whitehead, who is probably the biggest name in that category, and those who he influenced as well as what his influences were. Um, and he also will discuss people that scholars debate whether or not the person was a pantheist or a panentheist, because sometimes it's not clear because people aren't always consistent in their writings and their ideas. You know, you can't always neatly categorize them. And he's very, very um, fair and honest about that. Uh, but then he just takes it up into modern times. Um, and it's just an excellent book. I have recommended this book, I don't know how many times to people, because actually... I went on a search for a book on this topic, and the only books I could find were books that were pro-panentheism. Mm. And, um, of course, reading one of those might be helpful because I can see it from their viewpoint, but I was really looking for a Christian critique. And, of course, I, would, I wouldn't I would recommend a pro-panentheist book. So, right. uh, But for most people, um, unless they're just seriously studying it in a scholarly way. So I recommend this one. So Panentheism, The Other God of the Philosophers by John W. Cooper. I got it on Amazon. All right. Sounds good. So when we were messaging back and forth about today, uh, you mentioned that you wanted to clarify a statement that you made last week regarding Richard Rohr and something that he wrote in his book, The Universal Christ, about Christ originating at the Big Bang. So when you had said that, I kind of bristled and asked if Rohr believes that Christ was a created being, and then uh, you wanted to clarify that for us. So go ahead and, and offer some thoughts on that uh, for all of those people who listened to last week. Uh, here's here's a clarification on that. Okay, yes, thank you uh, for letting me do that. Yes, this is something, actually, I heard, first heard him say it on an um, interview that's on YouTube. And um, I think in light of other statements he has made, what he is saying and what he believes is that the first incarnation of God was creation. So in other words, when Jesus was born, which historically Christians see as the incarnation, <laughs> right. uh, Rohr thinks that's the second incarnation. 
uh, of God, and the first incarnation is creation. And this incarnation is a sort of Christ, is a, is a Christ. Um, then Jesus is born later, of course, uh, and that's the second incarnation, although Jesus is a man. Now, he does not deny the deity of Christ. He affirms the deity of Christ and says God was in Christ, but he has this unusual view of the first incarnation. So I think when he said Christ began with the Big Bang, he was meaning the first incarnation of Christ was the Big Bang because the first incarnation is creation. This is part of his panentheism in, in identifying Christ as being really in creation. So this is sort of making sense of when he says that the universe is the body of God. Yes, that's what he means. That's what he means. He means it in a literal way. And that's why he talks about in the universal Christ about uh, everything in creation uh, being in Christ, you know, and he even brings up specific things like the flowers and the honeybees and the mountains and the rivers, etc., and everything that we see in creation um, that was created by God. I, I don't think he means things that like houses and, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> street right. lamps or things like that, but everything in, in creation that's created by God is in Christ. And uh, yes, that's why he says the universe is the body of God. And that is a panentheistic statement. We're going to get into some other things today. And I'll be honest, I'm eager to get to the Jen Hatmaker, Richard Rohr podcast, because we both have listened to this in the last 24 hours. So it's really fresh and we're going to talk about it. Uh, But I don't want to uh, neglect something that we had planned on talking about last week. And that's how to recognize some of these panentheistic ideas in our Christian material. So last week we defined it. You helped us understand the language. So where are we going to see some of this pop up in devotionals and books and blogs and podcasts? I mean, a lot of these are going to be progressive Christian books and blogs, but we also see it among otherwise conservative Christians, maybe unknowingly using the language or... Uh, naively describing God in a panentheistic way, uh, but we need to be aware of it. We need to be able to identify it. So where where are you seeing this in Christian uh, material? Right. Um, yes. And, and, and some, I think, and as you said, some people do this without being aware of what it is they're expressing. Um, and, you know, in the case of a very popular uh, person, and who blogs online, has many followers, and has written two books, um, at least two books. Um, Her views express panentheism. I was very careful to document this and and make sure it wasn't just uh, that she was being poetic, but but she does use language over and over again that expresses panentheism. And the fact that she says... Um, I'm not a pantheist, shows that she is recognizing that there's something in her language that's unusual, that parts from the norm, because she says that at least, I think, three times, I'm not a pantheist. (laughs) And then she will say what she's going to say, or she says it right after she says something. So I think she recognizes it, uh, seeing God in 
in creation in in a literal way and seeing God in uh, things around her, um, seeing God in the faces of people. Uh, and she is putting this in such a way that I would call it panentheism, but I don't think either she doesn't know what panentheism is, which is my guess, Um, Or if she knows what it is, she doesn't understand that she's expressing it. And I think here a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, well, this person doesn't really mean it. She doesn't really, you know, if you ask her, you know, if you told her what a panentheist was, she would probably say, oh, no, I don't believe that. And that could be very true. But the, the problem is her language expresses it and we need to recognize it for ourselves. Um, Whether or not the person understands what they're doing is another issue. That's another issue. So um, I don't say she's deliberately doing this, but I think this is also part of her mysticism. Um, I think panentheism is just a built-in factor of most mysticism um, and mystical writings that I've read, people who tend to the mystic side, who start to see uh, things like God in everything, or or feel God everywhere, etc., in these in these very real ways, or think they can see Christ in something in creation. Usually, that is part of a mystical kind of view, or somebody who's being drawn towards the mystical view because it's very feeling based and has a lot to do with your emotions and your feelings. Mm. Um, And I think that's the case, at least partly the case with this person. Um, And so we have to understand what panentheism is and understand the language of it. Uh, Because it could make someone vulnerable, like if they're reading this from an otherwise trusted person, and then they hear Richard Rohr saying similar things. They right. might trust Richard Rohr because, oh, well, that's, that's saying the same thing as this conservative Christian writer, you know, and, and it could make people kind of vulnerable to this idea if they don't know what it is to be able to identify it. Exactly, exactly. Then, yes, then they think, well, then what Richard Rohr is saying is okay, because mm-hmm. it sounds like, you know, person X, uh, who I know is a good Christian or whatever. Um now, we, as you mentioned, we see it, and you have noticed this because you and I have talked about this before, in, in progressive Christianity, it's not unusual at all. <clears throat> and uh, it's in Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Um, I do have an article on that on my website, and I talk about how um, he says it. For example, he says, Jesus is the sacred power present in every dimension of creation, Hmm. and he is the mystery present in all of creation, and the mystery hidden in the fabric of creation. Um, And he says some other things as well. Those are just a few quotes. Uh, But it gave me very much the impression that he is, is, is being panentheistic. Not only that, but I, years ago, before he wrote this book, I watched some of the NUMA videos, which were very famous and were being shown, um, you know, to youth groups. Yeah, I remember them, yeah. <laughs> and young adult groups across the country in very conservative churches. And there were things, he, he's very good at saying things that make you think, 
huh, um, I wonder what he means by that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, and it's, it was hard to pin him down, but he had one video called Everything is Spiritual. And that one, I think, is very panentheistic. I think he was already expressing panentheism at that point because that video, even the idea everything is spiritual, doesn't necessarily mean panentheism, but it is very much of a panentheistic concept because then creation is spiritual because it's in God and part of God. And um, since he had already expressed that idea there, it wasn't too surprising um, to find it in uh, his book, Love Love uh, Wins. And so I have a short section on that. I, I understand that the scripture says Christ holds together all things. And of course, that means, I think it's in Colossians, of course, that means God is upholding creation. Jesus Christ is is keeping everything together in the sense that if it was his will to just have creation disappear, it could because creation is contingent, which means dependent on God. We exist because God created the world and, and created us and we're here because of that. But God is not in any way tied to the world in a way that means we we can keep on existing outside of God's will. We'll be right back in just a moment with Marsha Montenegro, but I want to take a second here and tell you about one of my sponsors, Impact 360, and their phenomenal Gen Z lab. Today's teens are passionate and socially aware and they're achievement-oriented, but they're also living in a different world with new rules. And they need to be equipped with a biblical view of the world. The Gen Z Lab is your guide to leading the next generation. Come away better equipped to champion this generation as they navigate a post-Christian culture. You can go to genzlab.impact360institute.org. That's genzlab.impact360institute.org. And you can sign up for free and have access to all kinds of great content. There's actually an extended interview with me on Doubt. Check out Impact360's Gen Z Lab. I think you'll like what you find there. I read Love Wins, and I also read um, his later book called What We Talk About When We Talk About God. And in that book, he refers to God with terms like life force, creative energy, Uh unending divine vitality. And then, and he does actually mention God's transcendence, so I don't want to gloss over that. He does throw that in there, that God's also transcendent. But he, this is a quote from his book. Uh, He says, when we talk about God... We're talking about the straightforward affirmation that everything has a singular common source and is infinitely, endlessly, deeply connected. So is that kind of what, is that a panentheistic view there where he's talking about the interconnectedness of everything? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, You would have to have, you know, the context for it, um, you know, because someone could say that and not be panentheistic, Mm. but considering the other statements Mm -hmm. that he's made uh, that you just uh, quoted and that I saw in Love Wins and in the NUMA video, um, 
Yes, I think it's panentheistic, and and often they'll say everything's interconnected or everything's connected, you know, which Mm -hmm. is kind of the same thing. And, yeah, in a sense, everything's connected. In a certain sense, scientifically, um, you know, the sun shines on plants and they grow. I mean, (laughs) it's not connected by some kind of underlying energy or power. And the idea of of Christ upholding everything just means that the power of, of, of God is upholding the existence of the universe because it is his creation and it exists because of him and his power. And like I said, if he wanted it to disappear, it could just disappear. So, I mean, that's not what God's going to do because he has told us what's going to happen. So we, we know right. it's not going to disappear. The old, yeah, there's going to be the old creation will be burned up uh, in, in first or second Peter, I think, and, and a new creation, but it's not just going to disappear. So um, that's people take that, and I've seen other panentheists do that. They take that verse about Christ upholding everything by his power, and they take that to support panentheism. So it's very important to understand the difference. That's not what scripture is saying. It's not saying there's some kind of divine energy or force in creation uh, that is is actually exists as some kind of force. It's just saying Christ has the power to uphold creation. It's just like God's power to create. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's people need to, um, it's, it's important to be aware of the distinctions between what the Bible is saying and what panentheism is saying, because panentheists are very good at taking certain passages of scripture to support their view. Mm-hmm. So any, any other examples you want to share with us before we move on? Or? Uh, I, I saw some in, I saw some panentheism in um, the shack. Oh yeah. William, had, yeah. yeah that, that's not a surprise at all. In fact, when I read the book, The Shack, I haven't seen the movie, but when I read the book, there's this scene where he's out in this field and like all the colors of the universe. I, I'm going to say it wrong because it's not fresh in my mind and it's been yeah. a year or two since I read it. But isn't there a scene where like different colors even come into him? And Yes. Yeah, yeah. that that felt very panentheistic panentheistic to me, although uh, at the time that I read it, I wasn't incredibly aware of panentheism yet. So maybe you can unpack the shack a little bit. Yeah, and I and it's been even longer since I read it. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not too fresh for me, but um, yeah, he has some ideas here that are um, that are that are new agey and panentheistic. He does talk about the colors. Uh, he gives this sort of sacredness uh, to creation. Um, he talks about being, well, he has this line, being always transcends appearance that uh, the, basically saying that's the quote from the book. Uh, and basically, uh, that's reality is not a truthful representation of what exists. Mm. So there's a, there's something hidden behind it, sort of this divine power, um, this divine energy, although he doesn't use those words. I think the the panentheism in the shack is much harder to see. It's not as obvious. Um, but he actually has uh, Jesus say that God is the ground of all being. Now, there is a orthodox way to think that, meaning that God is the source of creation and 
you know, everything goes back to God in the sense God created everything. But there's also a panentheistic idea there mm-hmm. that everything that is existing is is actually grounded, literally kind of grounded in, in this divine energy um, that we were just talking about. And I think the fact that William Young, I mean, I, and as I say, it's harder to see in, in the shack, but I, I did see little hints of it here and there in some of his languages, a language. I think the fact later, since he wrote the foreword to Richard Rohr's book on the Trinity, yes. uh, which I know you read, uh, and I didn't, but you read that book, and then he joined Richard Rohr and Richard Rohr's colleague Cynthia Bergolt, um, or Bergolt, um, in the conference Richard Rohr did on the Trinity, and he joined them. He was one of the three people. Uh, right there with them on the same page, I think shows, and I would guess indicates he has accepted panentheistic ideas. Mm-hmm. It's hard to join with Richard Rohr on that level if you are not agreeing with his panentheism because it's a big factor in Richard Rohr's belief system. Yeah. Uh, when we were emailing back and forth, something caught my eye that you mentioned that I think this was maybe something Richard Rohr said or wrote about, and it's the concept of Jesusolatry. And so I want to talk about that. Um, so as you described in the last episode, Rohr makes a distinction between Jesus and what he calls the universal Christ. We actually touched on that already a little bit in this episode as well. And I, I think I understood a little bit more about what he's saying when I listened to the podcast this morning with Jen Hatmaker. Um, and he claims that this is all biblical. He claims it's what Paul was talking about. He claims that this is actually the historic view that got lost when the Eastern Church split from the West. And uh, so maybe you can help us with this a little bit. What is Jesus Olatry? What does he mean by that? Where Where is he getting that idea from? Yeah, Jesus Olatry is actually a statement from a woman named Ilia Delio, and that's um, I-L-I-A, and her last name is D-E-L-I-O, in case people want to, you know, Google or something. She's a Franciscan nun um, and teacher and uh, writer, and Richard Rohr has put several of her blogs on his his blog site. Uh, He has a a huge, if you really want to understand his views, you know, find his his, uh, blog, uh, or maybe you can call it a website with all his blogs on it. You can do searches on it. Uh, A lot will come up if you put in panentheism. Put in Elia Delio and her blogs will come up. Um, Elia Delio is very, very open panentheist. This is a big thing for her. She talks about it and writes about it very openly. She talks a lot about Teilhard de Chardin, which I think we briefly touched on in the previous broadcast, who who I think, I don't know if he called himself a panentheist, but I think his views fall in that category. And she said Christianity has become a religion of Jesus Jesusolatry and has lost sight of Christ who symbolizes divinity at the heart of the whole, W-H-O-L-E. And what she means by that is is the cosmos, Mm. the creation. And she says, uh, 
then she refers to someone named Raymond Panikar, like Tyhard, realize that Christ is not a law or doctrine by which grace and virtue is possible. Christ is the life, not only of human life or life in terrestrial creation, but the life of the universe and all universes where there is intelligent life. Christ is a symbol of the whole of reality. Um, so I think what she means by Jesusolatry, it's basically a lot of what Richard Rohr has said without, I don't know if he's used that term himself. It's that Christianity is too focused on the person of Jesus and is too focused on the historical Jesus, let's say, of Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, which is what Richard Rohr calls a, a Jesus that's different from the Christ Paul talks about, because uh, he makes this distinction between Jesus as Jesus in the Gospels and Christ, uh, this universal Christ. And Elia Delio does the same thing. So Christianity has been too focused on this Jesus who came and lived, lived on earth and then died on the cross and rose again. And what we need to focus on is this more cosmic Christ, this Christ that's the symbol of the whole reality. Um, and this is a panentheistic Christ, because Christ is in the creation. Creation is in Christ, and that's much bigger than Jesus, um, according to her and Richard Rohr. And so that's what Jesusolatry is. It's, it's this not recognizing the universal or the cosmic Christ. Yeah, wow. That is that that's just really troubling. Yes. <laughs> it's <laughs> on a lot of levels. It's a different Jesus. It's a different Jesus and the implication is don't give Jesus so much of your worship. Yes. Let's, let's focus on this more of this concept. Um man, you know, I've heard progressive preachers even talk and I'm not sure that this is the same thing that Roar and the the woman you're talking about are saying, but I've even heard progressive pastors say we shouldn't be worshiping Jesus because he's just an example of a highly evolved human who maybe became the son of God in a certain way due to this heightened level of evolution. And our human nature tends to want yeah. to venerate people like that. And um, and and act, interestingly the sermon I listened to in which this pastor was saying this was in the context of cosmic Christ, uh, this idea of the, the cosmic Christ. But it's like this t entirely different concept that's been imported into the biblical language. And um, yeah, that's that's definitely... and that, That's why I think that jumped out at me, because you also hear people accuse Christians of bibliolatry, as, yes, if, as yes. if obeying the Word of God is the same as worshiping it, or in some way separating the Word of God from God. And and so, yeah, those are kind of buzzwords that always sort of perk my ears up a little bit. Yes, and I think, um, and, and Richard Rohr has said, Jesus never told us to worship Him. Wow. He has said that, and... Um, I think it's in the Universal Christ. Uh, Jesus, well, he says Jesus didn't say worship me; he said follow me. That's oh, in the wow. book, and I, but I've heard him say that in his interviews. Uh, and so he doesn't come right out and say, "Don't worship Jesus," or "It's wrong to," you know, because that mm -hmm. would be too extreme for him as a, a Roman Catholic. Because he doesn't want to get he doesn't want to get branded as a heretic. Because he goes, I noticed this in the podcast that he goes. Yeah 
really out of his way to keep claiming, I'm biblical, I'm biblical. Yeah. You know, and like you kind of mentioned with that other author, you wouldn't have to say that if you weren't saying things that were so outside the norm of what exactly. somebody would could be considered biblical. Or he'll say, I'm you know, I'm not a heretic and this isn't heresy, and here's why. And all yes. right, I think with that, we're gonna wrap up our talk on panentheism. If you're listening today, thanks for joining us. Just be looking for these ideas in the things that you read and, and listen to. And we don't have to be fearful, but it's always a wise thing to take the things we hear and read and compare them with scripture and make our judgments based on that. I hope you'll come back next week because Marcia and I are going to offer our best analysis of this recent podcast episode of Jen Hatmaker's podcast, where she had Richard Rohr uh, come on. And I think it's a really important thing to talk about because of how influential someone like Jen Hatmaker is. She has thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of followers. Uh, so many people follow her on social media, read her books, and listen to her podcast. So when someone like that endorses someone like Richard Rohr, it's going to give him a lot more traction, I think, uh, among maybe a different group than would have naturally discovered him or been attracted to his teachings. And so it's really important that we address these things. And so we're going to do our best to unpack that for you next week. So I hope you come back and check that out. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.